Welcome back to another episode of Our Concrete Garden, a four-part series hoping to plant some seeds about why urban green spaces are so important for uniting our communities. I'm your host, Rawson. We've spent the last three episodes talking about why plants are needed. Individuals, communities, and the big city could all share some of the benefits. We learned about how humans have an unspoken bond to nature and how it seems to have this mystical ability to calm us, reduce pain, and seemingly improve our health both mentally and physically. Not only that, but we also talked about how gardening and green spaces are a great way to bring people together in the community to learn a new skill and bond together. Great things can happen when we work together. People can share knowledge, techniques, and foods for no reason other than goodwill. Fauna in the neighborhood is also a beautiful attraction for the locals and to wildlife too. And last episode, we looked at how maintaining green spaces can have a bigger impact on the city by helping against flood prevention, reducing heat, and acting as spaces for us to get together and enjoy nature. We also talked about how it's not exactly a perfect process to get all these things together. Trouble can arise any step of the way, whether it's the city pulling all the funding for the projects, crotchety community members spoiling the party, developers stepping on our toes, or the big bad climate change that impacts all natural life. On the final episode of Our Concrete Garden, we're asking, how do we move forward then? What now? Well, I've gotten a general idea of what's happening here in the city, but thankfully I'm joined by my guest today, Hilda, and we'll be discussing what to make of all this information we've learned over the past few episodes. All right, so thank you so much, Hilda, for joining me on this last episode of Our Concrete Garden. I'm so happy to have you here. Why don't we begin with you telling a bit about yourself and what is it that you do? Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so my name is Hilda. I'm the urban agriculture manager at The Stop, and I've just been working here for a few months now, so I'm quite new. But I've always worked in positions that combine community work and food, and I have a background in agriculture and, yeah, working in settings where people are given opportunities or empowered through, like, ways that involve food. So yeah, I studied agriculture in school and I worked on a farm for a year and I've always been obsessed with growing food since I used to visit my family back in Iran every summer and all of my family there seemed to grow food in different ways. So I was really inspired by that and I always had a passion from them to see where I could connect my work to bring together newcomers and immigrants and racialized folks and like opportunities around food. Because I think that when you're new to a country or you haven't developed like the English language skills yet, it connecting through food is, is like really feasible when like someone shares food from their culture or brings you homemade food or shows you a type of like vegetable that you've never seen grow before. I think those are always meaningful experiences that connect us. That's amazing. From the sounds of it, it really seems like you've had this connection starting from such a young age. It's really come out in such a full force now because you know you have these family experiences and then you develop your own connection then you kind of moved into agriculture kind of like setting a 
setting the scene for how to convey this message of belonging and connection and stuff. And now through your position, you're really trying to help that on a larger scale towards the community. So that's awesome. Starting with episode one, Ileana had mentioned something about being a participant in gardening and how that gave her so many nice feelings and it really helped her mental health with plants. That seems like a really deep connection to have with planting and gardening. Do you think that that's something that people just have or is that a skill or a feeling that can develop? There's a lot of different ways that this can happen for people. I really truly believe that everyone has some sort of connection with land or like plants or growing food. It's just that certain people have been given like access and the opportunity and that experience and some haven't. And there's so many connotations with like land and growing food, just like speaking from the perspective of like immigrants from a lot of places of the world, like growing food is associated with kind of like low skill labor. So it's not like the most empowering thing for folks to grow their own food sometimes. Whereas for North American, like white folks, like it's a really lovely pastime that we see as very therapeutic. So I think that if, you know, people and especially racialized people are giving these opportunities in really dignified ways, then they can form their own connections with food in a really beautiful way. But there's so many different ways that people could connect to these kinds of things. Like some people love getting their hands dirty and that's a really therapeutic experience or witnessing something grow from seed to plant or being able to taste their first cherry tomato from the garden. Everyone has the capacity to connect with it. I just think it's how you get it like offered to you in your life. Totally. I'm really glad that you brought that up. It seems like even if when you're in a city and you're surrounded by such infrastructure, there always is that intrinsic bond. And it's just kind of a matter of what you're saying, opportunity and resources to kind of share that and let that bloom. Another thing that she mentioned that I found to be really impactful is talking about Indigenous people, because we can't talk about providing land without acknowledging Indigenous peoples and their original connections as caretakers of the land. When it comes to kind of modern in the city agriculture and kind of urban gardening movements, how do you think we can integrate indigenous principles back into our park development and our community gardens? Yeah, I think that is so super important and should always be part of the conversation when talking about land, uh, like in the city. I think it's really complicated because there's been so much trauma and just like challenges for indigenous folks to get connected to land. There's like the land back movement, which I'm a big supporter of. So literally giving land back to Indigenous folks. I feel like, you know, we could talk about all of these ways to incorporate and prioritize Indigenous folks in land use, but until we like give land back and give like the ownership and the power over pieces of land back to Indigenous communities that have been here for hundreds of years, then there won't be any fundamental change. But what we can start to do now to work towards that is to partner up with like Indigenous groups and organizations and give them the lead and how to like run a space and give them like growing access in parks or like consult with individuals from Indigenous communities on how to design and plan land and what uses it should serve. A really lovely program that we have at the stop is we have a garden called the Medicine Wheel Garden or the Mishkiki Garden. 
And we work with the native men's residence called NAMIRES, which all the individuals there are folks that have precarious housing. And they are all the volunteers and participants that help run this garden. And so that garden is exclusive to them and they get ownership of, you know, what to grow there and how to use what is harvested. That's on like city property. And that's like, I think community organizations can play a big role in kind of like, at least like leasing this land from the city and then giving more ownership to indigenous communities through like the power that they have. Right. And I've been seeing a lot of land acknowledgements pop up these days at different Toronto events, different kind of local events. And I think like you're saying, you know, without giving the land back, sometimes these kind of acknowledgements kind of just go up in the air and they're just things are said without true meaning behind it. And another kind of project I've been seeing as well from the Toronto Transit Commission is the acknowledgement of the original places of Indigenous importance in regards to different bus stops or routes, which is really interesting. So I really hope we can see more kind of acknowledgement, meaningful acknowledgement and cultural acknowledgement of Indigenous people, especially after the very purposeful attempts to render them extinct. So hopefully you're right, more leasing of the land, more involvement with organizations to Indigenous groups, and hopefully things can grow from that. Moving on to episode two, we talked a lot about community gardening coordinating, which I know that you have a little bit of experience of as well. So like you were saying, So many people come from such different backgrounds, whether they're newcomers, maybe they don't have common language, or maybe they don't have any gardening experience. So what do you think is the best approach to making sure that a variety of community members can come use these services, especially when sometimes they're a little bit harder to outreach to? Yeah, I think, you know, it's challenging to make like a space accessible to truly to like a diverse community at the start. And I think that you know, building trust with a community and neighborhood is an important starting off point. But I think that once, you know, folks join a program or involved in a community gardening space, it's important to make space for knowledge sharing and opportunities for those individuals to become leaders and in that space so they can have a sense of ownership and they want to come back. You could like make a community garden and have participants and volunteers come every week. But what's truly meaningful is for people to feel like they have like a say and they're responsible and and care for a piece of land. That's such a meaningful feeling, in my opinion. And just being in so many different community garden spaces. I really think knowledge sharing is is so important. What I mean by that is giving opportunities for people to show what they know about growing food or like food in any ways, even though someone might be new to the country or someone might be new to a space, it doesn't mean that they don't have their own knowledge that they're bringing. And I've seen such Mm. special moments when someone is given the space to like share a tradition or a way that they grow food with the rest of the group or like one other person there. It's so lovely. We have maybe learned all these ways to, to grow food and like run land here, but it's important to remember that a lot of people like grew up with that interwoven into their livelihoods and like growing up. So yeah, giving that space. That's beautiful. I think that you're so right in saying how sometimes there's hurdles, but they're not 
complete stoppages. I was speaking to somebody earlier in an interview and then they said they had this great quote of water will always find its way to the ground and really resonate with me because people will always find a way to kind of overcome these things. But speaking more about hurdles, Tirza also mentioned how problems can arise when it comes to community gardens, things like infrastructure decisions, chore delegations, tool sharing. As somebody who has gardening experience as well as somebody who kind of oversees those types of things, do you think that community gardens could be independently run by the gardeners or do you think that organizations should be overseeing them? I think it's it's really hard to start a community garden. You do need a lot of infrastructure. You know, you need like everything from the inputs for the soil, you need fencing, you need all those tools, you need a wheelbarrow, you need plants and seeds. And often an individual person doesn't have access to all those things on their own. Um, so definitely as a community, you know, there's more resources if everyone comes together. But unless someone is being like paid to run a community garden space, I, I don't think it's possible to just run on its own. I think that's why organizations and like community groups that run community garden spaces are so important to just to take the lead on that. And I think that's okay, you know, as if they're playing the role as like providing the resources and providing the space and being kind of like a facilitator instead of the boss or like the director of the space. I think that's an important role that organizations and, and groups can play in running a space. But uh, I think, I think for like community groups, I don't know. I don't know. I, I bet there's like a bunch in the city that just run on their own without like an overseeing body. I think that, yeah, you'd have to have like some really dedicated members or have some sort of like pay structure available so people can really like devote time and you can get adequate resources, but it's hard. No, that totally makes sense because either you need all the capital and all the resources involved in it, or you really need a lot of determination and like free time, to be honest, if you're not being paid. And in our last episode, we were talking to Willow about kind of urban planning and parks and public spaces. Willow had this quote about everyone's right in the city and how everyone deserves a say in public decision making. But when it comes to kind of these public consultations, what's your take on making sure that everyone feels as though they have the agency to actually be heard by the city? Everyone certainly does have the right to be heard by the city, but sometimes the structures of the city and kind of like policies and the bureaucracy of the city gets in the way of action of like individual and community members. So I think it's great when the city makes opportunities for people to be heard and it's so important for participating commons and, you know, like ways to influence what the city does. But I also think that it's great to work outside of that if, if that is possible, just like organizing within your own community and, and working through that. Oftentimes that doesn't have the same like bureaucratic barriers and waiting periods. It's just often more challenging because the city has more access to resources and land and, you know, like ways of doing things. But it's important not to like underestimate the power that, you know, like a small group of community members can have, you know, with pooling their resources and knowledge and power. Yeah. So I think both are important in their different ways. 
Right. And I think that the power of community mobilization is also kind of interesting in a way that people are more likely to feel more connected to their people compared to the big omnius city and not knowing what the city does. And talking about city planning, things like legacy parks, those really big parks like Riverdale and High Park, they seem to be a real thing of the past because they were very purposely built to be big parks at a time where maybe buildings were more sparse and not as dense. And then looking back at things like the Rail Deck Park, you know, meant to be this huge new modern era park was recently derailed by something more akin to a condo development or a multi-use building. How do you think the city should balance projects between housing and public green spaces? Yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, there the the city is already jam-packed with housing and just like space used for different reasons, but I mean, we definitely need more housing. I think that is important. I think just the way it's done needs to be improved. So you know, I think there's a rule in the city that like a certain percentage of new housing needs to be social housing. So if that was increased along with like the new housing developments, I think that would be great if we could continue to just to build housing in a way that could be more affordable for folks rather than just for profit. Then I'm a proponent of that preserving and maybe like nourishing the green spaces that we already have. I think would be important. There is a lot of green space in the city and we could certainly benefit from more, but I think there are different ways that we could like take care of the green space that we have, make them more inviting. Mm -hmm. And I think just coming out of doing this research and talking about these things, everything seems kind of like a lot of work. There's a lot of kind of infighting anywhere you look. There's a lot of bureaucracy. So in your opinion, what's the point of fighting for green spaces in the city? I think it's so important. I think that, yeah, we are losing, we often do lose a lot of free space for housing development, but it's so important, especially, you know, if you observe during the pandemic, green spaces were such a haven for people just to get some outdoor time and there should be and like accessible and like for all, you know, just even with the encampments that have been happening in city parks in the past year, I think that's a great use of outdoor green space. I mean, the green space, it's so important, whether it be for leisure, whether like it be just like enjoy a walk, whether it's used as like a public space that, you know, someone is housed in temporarily. It's so important and and totally worth the fight. And it's interesting that you had mentioned all these different groups too in the purpose of what a green space should be used for. To end things off, What do you hope for for the future of Toronto in regards to green spaces and gardens? That we continue to grow the amount of community gardens in the city. I think they are such a beautiful opportunity for people. Yeah, just to exercise ownership over a small piece of land and grow food for themselves and learn more about that process. And our green spaces continue to be made more accessible and offer you know like these therapeutic havens and the busy rush of the city for people to enjoy and that we think about from being used as encampments to being used for like a soccer game those are both equally valid in their own way yeah with this entire process 
I consider myself to be very lucky that I got to learn so much about plants in the city. I was given such an amazing opportunity to connect with so many kind and intelligent people. But I can't forget to add one more statement from a very special guest about his dreams for Toronto's public green spaces. I present to you the Director of Programs at the Stop Community Food Centre, Francisco. I hope that green spaces can be incorporated in every neighborhood so that communities can come together and, you know, be connected with the land and with, you know, growing food. I think that the green spaces and public green spaces in Toronto should also be devoted to promote environmental sustainability because we are going through a lot of environmental changes that require that we actually have more green spaces in urban centers. And my fear is that we are not planning enough for them and that we are, you know, focusing more on, you know, building concrete jungles and not really promoting green spaces, even incorporating them into these new buildings. So those are my hopes and with the intention of technically, you know, ensure that communities have the best opportunities to improve their health outcomes when it comes to nutrition, food security, reducing social isolation, and to have a world where they can actually live, play in these public spaces without fear of getting burned by a huge heat wave or a huge, you know, extreme weather event. And that, you know, we actually frequent more these spaces rather than to stay indoors using air conditioning and making situations worse for environmental changes that we're going through. So those are my big hopes and, and that green spaces can also be acknowledged to be indigenous lands where, where we are all guests and that we are responsible for maintaining a good relationship with the land in a reciprocal way. So we have to take care of nature so that nature can take care of us. That's all. Earlier this episode, I asked how we could move forward from here, and what's the point of fighting for green spaces anyways? Well, I feel like we should continue the fight for equitable and accessible public green spaces because we need it. I still do genuinely believe that Toronto is a beautiful city. COVID-19 has really shed a light on how terrible it is to be isolated, confined to unsuitable living conditions, and struggling to get by. Do I think that having more parks will change all that? No. But what I'm trying to say is that our city is worth fighting for, and parks and gardens are just one way to unify us together after one of the worst years of our lives. When I think about the future of Toronto, funnily enough, I still see myself here. I hope that the plants will overtake all the glass towers, parks will stretch their veins through the city, and that the trees in the streets will be full of fruit that is free to pick. All of the playgrounds will have the tallest and coolest slides, and teeter-totters with colorful animals. Let every park have an indigenous name and plot for traditional plants. I want farmers markets to be a permanent staple in every neighborhood park, and I dream of public spaces where people can learn about how to grow flowers for the bees and vegetables for their kids. I know that what I dream of and what will be reality are completely different things. Fighting for green spaces won't be easy. Nothing here ever is. But maybe the long road ahead just starts with a single seed.